All right, Lindsay. So I received your Instagram message asking about whether or not there was any stigma really noticed among like people with COVID and herpes. Was that the question? Yeah, or if you had noticed, like, maybe amongst your own community, like, is there a lot of COVID transmission stigma, um, much in the same way that we see it with HSV or HIV, um, because of that kind of viral element and, and that it's so contagious? So this came up in conversations with someone. Well, actually, a few people have asked about it, and by a few, I only mean like three or four. Um, I don't think there's enough really data or information available or any at all really to really speak into details or say anything as fact or not. But what we do have is like, if you look at it from a stigma perspective, it's very interesting how COVID-19 is a virus, HSV is a virus, Granted, you know, obviously COVID has mortalities. HSV, as far as we know, hasn't killed anyone. Um, And if I'm wrong about that, you know, message me, whatever. But how we're responding to this virus and taking all of the precautions that are readily available to us on a global scale. um, Think about it like sports are shut down. And there's people wearing masks, people are showering more, washing their hands, and taking so many precautions to avoid getting this virus. And it almost seems like it's, it seems like there's not enough that can be done. And then when we look at it from a herpes perspective, um, the, the precautions there are so limited. I mean, there's a medication that lowers the risk, but people still get it. And then there's um, being asymptomatic, just like you can be with COVID. And the it, it, it just really creates all this like idealistic dialogue because there's similarities, but there's differences at the same time. So... It's not, it, it'll be interesting to see how we navigate things moving forward because with herpes being an STD, um, and we talk about STIs, STDs interchangeably, but when we're going to be sexually intimate with someone and we're putting them at risk of exposure to the virus, we talk about our sexual health status. Now, we're in a climate now where we're talking about COVID, right? And people needing to know, okay, have you been in contact with anyone else in the last 14 days? What's your risk factors? Um, Do you work in the medical community? Are you exposed to people? Do you know anyone who's had this virus? And the, the conversation there is, it'll be interesting to see how these go as we move forward in the future, um, because it's kind of a similar conversation that maybe we should have, maybe we shouldn't have in relation to putting someone at uh, risk of contracting a virus. But again, we can be asymptomatic for both of these, not know it, and then pass it on to someone. So um, I don't have an answer (laughs) as far as stigma goes, but um, it, it does bring up 
the discussion of how these two things um, relate and how in the future discussions around not just sexual health, but our, our health in general, like overall, universally, this really shifts how we look at discussions around our health, right? So um, you and I spoke before we did this call and I kind of wish I would have just hit record and let you talk, but I'm going to do that now. If you want, you can go ahead and just go into the story um, in as much detail as you want, and then I'll just jump in. So you were diagnosed yesterday, April 22nd. I don't know what day it is anymore. April 23rd with COVID-19. Oh, wow. So we're talking about almost three weeks. If we think that you were, you had first contracted it um, April 5th and it's April 23rd now, we're looking at almost three weeks. Yep. So we were looking at my timeline with different patients um, and I'm lucky enough to be able to actually quantify my exposures um, because I am on, you know, care logs on my patients' doors. Um, so that way, uh, if it's a person who we are thinking about testing or who has COVID-like symptoms, then uh, my occupational health team is able to call me and say, hey, you were exposed and we see that you were asked not to use a certain type of PPE with this patient because we thought we were pulling them out. Well, it turns out that they're positive. So that way I know to wear a mask or to isolate in a particular way. Um, I'm, I mean, we're hazarding a guess, the Department of Health uh, and I, based on that timeline, that I may have contracted the disease um, somewhere between the 5th and the 10th. Um, but it's, you know, there's really no way of knowing. Um, I developed a fever on the 14th of April. And then my fever resolved on the 17th, and I was cleared to go back to work again. Um, then five days later, I developed more symptoms, um, and that was um, losing my sense of taste and smell, uh, myalgia, which appeared as just a headache, um, but it's a nerve pain that's associated with the virus uh, that can feel like a sinus headache or a backache. Um, and then um, I developed shortly after that, probably 48 hours later, shortness of breath um, and fatigue. And that's kind of, those are the only symptoms that I'm really dealing with right now. Um, but it's really, with the exception of my fever, been pretty mild um, and very sneaky uh, in, in terms of how it, it's felt physically. Uh, it, it didn't happen all at once. It really didn't hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, it could have felt like it was not at all what I was expecting. Um, and I don't think that it was what um, our diagnosis algorithms really suggest as, you know, there, it, it, took, it took a full week, almost a week and a half for anyone to say, oh, hey, danger, you're going to want to, completely isolate. Uh, there was a lot of back and forth, um, I think, because it was so mild. Um, so I'm, I'm encouraging other people to, to be aware of that, because um, it definitely took me by surprise. 
Um, it took my partner by surprise. It took my parents by surprise. Um, and we all, you know, are pretty on board with social distancing and, you know, hand washing, all kinds of different kinds of preventative measures. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you think COVID, you don't, you think of a very severe illness. You de I definitely did not think of this mild sort of, uh, the clinical term is malaise, you know, just feeling kind of crummy. Mm -hmm. That's it. Um, and I think with young people too, we're a lot more of us will discover when we do serology and antibody testing that we've had this and didn't know it than I, I think than we initially imagined. Mm -hmm. What's the test look like? What's the testing process for COVID? So my hospital has a very limited number of tests because we're in New York State um, and we've had a lot of trouble getting tests, but um, it's a swab. Uh, we do not have a blood test that we're doing yet. Um, I don't even know if there's been one approved in the United States yet, but um, basically what they do, it's very similar to um, influenza testing. Um, so um, anybody who's had that knows it's a little uncomfortable. They basically take a very long Q-tip and put it as far up your nose as they can for five seconds. Uh, and if you have a sinus headache already, you're, it, it sucks. Um, but it's over in a snap. Um, I pulled up in my car and they swapped me right there. Uh, you know, someone came out in all of her PPE with her face shield and um, the PA that I work with and she tested me and, um, and then, uh, and then I got out of there. Uh, and so right now in, I think the majority of, of the United States, you either need, um, a physician's order or they're, or they're testing, you know, when you're already a hospital patient, if you have symptoms, uh, we have right now, um, I got my order through occupational medicine. Um, at my hospital, they needed to know that so that I could go back to work. Um, we are doing public testing as well. Um, if someone calls their, their general practitioner, they can get an order for a test and it's a paper order and they just drive up to a testing site. Um, a lot of grocery stores are making this possible and targets and things like that. And, uh, and they do, they repeat the process there. So it's that swab, it goes in a little vial and then it gets sent to a lab and they look for, uh, for the DNA of the virus and they use um, something called a polymerase chain reaction. So that's uh, the PCR test that we are all hearing a lot about on the news. That's what that looks like. Okay. This may be a silly question, but if you are positive and you don't seem to really have heavy symptoms, why can't you continue to work with the COVID patients? Um, I could continue to work with COVID patients, but any of my coworkers that have not contracted the disease would then be at risk for, from me um, because I am around them without certain types of PPE on. So I, if I didn't know I had the virus and I was sharing like a computer or something, um, even if I had a surgical mask on, um, that could still put the person next to me at risk, even if they're three feet away. Um, and so in hospitals or any workplace, we have lots and lots of high touch 
surfaces. Um, lots of countertops, phones, keyboards, door handles, coffee makers, whatever. Um, so uh, we want people going back to work when they are the least contagious. Um, so when when someone's diagnosed, their um, ability to transmit the disease gets really, really high, and then it levels off and eventually decreases to where we're not passing it on to each other. Um, it's, it's getting people isolated during the window that they're the most contagious and when they have the highest viral load. Um, so when we talk about HSV with what our viral load is, um, we know we can decrease that with HSV medications or with, um, uh, you know, stress reduction and, and, you know, having a healthy immune system. Um, we can't do that with COVID. We can only do that with time. So I can't go back to work until I'm no longer contagious because I, I come in, I also work with a lot of patients who do not have COVID. Um, and I'm, I work in an ancillary department where I work with um, patients in pretty much every unit of the hospital. Um, the only the only individuals that I don't come into contact with are usually newborn babies. Okay. So, um, and I'm, I am hands-on with patients, so I am around a lot of different people, and I think that was one of the reasons that uh, they said, yeah, don't come back to work yet. Um, I was a little surprised after my fever that they said, yeah, come back in. Like, you're good to go on Monday. Um, but I also think that when it comes to healthy younger people, I, I noticed that our healthcare system doesn't typically take them very seriously. So, so when you say that, you mean like uh, you mentioned with me that you get reoccurring ear infections and you get fevers. Um, and so during this time, that having been a norm for you, what made this particular time that you got a fever different? Is it just the climate that we're in where it's like, oh, wait, you got a fever now in this window? We're going to test you for COVID, not, oh, this is more of like your chronic um fever and ear infection that you get yeah if this had been last year at this time i think they would have been saying well can you take some tylenol and come in anyway and um this time they said don't take any tylenol we want to see how high your fever gets and um and for how long and we want it to go away on its own we don't want you to treat it with anything and that sucked, <laughs> but uh, it after about 72 hours, I didn't have a fever anymore. And um, so they said, all right, if you don't have a fever, then you must be fine, because mm -hmm. I didn't have any other symptoms. Uh, I didn't add, you know, I think usually we're looking at, okay, somebody's not feeling good. We're waiting for it to snowball and to see... They started with a fever, and now they've got a sore throat. They had a fever and a sore throat, now they've got a cough as well. Mm -hmm. um, but that did not happen to me. Uh, I had like a three or four day break where I felt mostly fine. And then I, then I lost my taste and smell. And that, you know, 
that happens with any, it happens often with respiratory illness. Uh, you know, you get stuffy nose, you can't taste anything, you can't smell anything. It's pretty mm. common. Um, and we look at that as pretty mild. I also didn't realize that that was one of the symptoms. Uh, or I didn't, I didn't realize that it was a marker symptom. It seemed like, um, I had probably heard some, I had probably heard someone say it in passing and didn't think anything of it. Um, I was trying to think back to like, how did I miss that? Um, but, and there, there's just a lot of information circulating too. I think it's a, we're calling it a data free zone because we don't have any information about really how to treat the virus or what medications work or what, you know, we can't look back and say, oh, well, six months ago we tried this because we didn't have this six months ago. But there's also an incredible amount of inaccurate data or presumptive data that is just as unhelpful as having none at all. Um, so I've had some friends say to me, well, how could you be so stupid as to not know that you definitely had COVID um, because you didn't feel well and it's like, well, I'm working, I'm working myself into tiny bits right now because we have a hospital full of COVID patients. I don't feel good a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm fatigued often. So, uh, that is, um, something I started asking myself too. It's like, well, how did I miss that? Mm -hmm. With so why, why did I not take my own self seriously? when I didn't feel good. Mm -hmm. With so many precautions being taken, I imagine that being a nurse, or nurse, doc, what, I didn't even ask you, what, what is your title? Um, I actually work in patient care logistics. Okay. So um, whenever a patient has a test order in, in my hospital, um, I do all of their care around that test. I just don't do the test itself. Um, our technicians do the test, but all patient transfers, um, I do uh, a moderate amount of pre and post operative care with patients um, before and after surgery. Um, I also um, will do their admission into the hospital from the emergency room, um, and I respond to code 99s. Um, every hospital has a different thing that they call those, but basically when someone is in cardiac arrest, um, I respond to those codes. So I do CPR and um, life-saving uh, measures on that patient with the rest of uh, the team that's been dispatched to treat that patient. Mm -hmm. um how long have you been taking these precautions to uh, protect yourselves against COVID? So we're in a rural area of New York State. Um, we don't, we didn't see, we didn't see a lot of, I know we were preparing this for several months, you know, when, when it became public, maybe even before that, that this was happening in China to the degree that it, happened. Um, I know our infection control team was trying to get as much information as they could about this, but we did not start using really even the word COVID until the beginning of March. And we really, things really didn't ramp up for us. It kind of happened. A lot of 
you know, the realities of the United States don't hit our area until a little bit later, um, after it's hit other places. But once, once the disease came to New York state as a whole, um, then we started using, um, then we started, you know, looking at like, okay, we need to make sure we have a way to get everybody N 95s. Um, and we've got to figure out how we're, um, I know our infectious disease team was looking, has been looking at since February. All right, what's our algorithm for diagnosis here? Um, what is our algorithm for treatment, for testing, for um, determining who wears what mask and when? Um, we've got all these fun posters saying, like, this is when you wear a cloth mask, and this is when you wear an N95, and this is when you wear a surgical mask. Um, and educating our staff about why are we wearing cloth gowns instead of rain slickers and things like that? Or is it okay to wear a bandana if you don't have a mask? Or, you know, all of these things that we've seen in the news. Um, you know, we have a smaller hospital. We have not been inundated with patients in a way that New York City hospitals have. Um, so we have, I want to say, the luxury of wearing designated PPE to care for our patients rather than wearing whatever's available. Other hospitals are having to wear whatever they can find. For those who don't know, what's PPE stand for? Uh, Personal protective equipment. So Uh, gloves, masks, goggles, gowns. All right. So I was talking about me when I said PPE. I hear it often, but I was like, uh, maybe I'm supposed to know what it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a term that like I never really used before mm-hmm. um, this happened. Uh, it was like a term that I would hear when I would go to infection control trainings. And I would be like, yeah, I'm going to just continue to call that my mask. <laughs> uh- so- so all of these precautions were put into place, and yet you still contracted the virus. Is it just that unavoidable, or what? Was there not? A, was there more that could be done? I wonder that, but I also um, we talk about this a lot in my department because we come into contact with so many different patients, and um, I work with other providers who don't have to enter my patients' rooms. Um, when that patient has an isolated organism that they are dealing with. So uh, a lot of the antibiotic resistant organisms are something we isolate uh, if a patient or if a patient has a suppressed immune system, um, that kind of thing. We, we do precautions like what we use for COVID, but not to this extent. Um, so my coworkers and I talk about this a lot. Um, people don't become more contagious when they enter a hospital space. Um, they already have that. They're just as contagious at Target as they are when they get to the hospital. Um, they're just as contagious at the gas station or in their own home so or at a restaurant. Um, and it's great that all of those places are not open now. Um, and that's one of, you know, COVID is contagious enough that we really can't have those places open. Um I don't think that I, that my hospital could have done more for me as an employee to prevent me from getting COVID. Um, they definitely, I mean, it's a hospital and it's a microorganism 
just like a school or a an airport or a business building. Um, there's all different things that go on in there that make it unique. Um, you know, we we also I also think that I signed up. I did sign up for this. Global pandemic was always on the table, even though that isn't something that I ever wanted to experience. Um, I work in healthcare, and so even though this is just really scary and stressful and undesirable, it was always possible. Um, it's not the first time we've had a pandemic. It's not going. It's not going to be the last. It may be the only one we experience in our lifetime, but this was always real. Um, I do not know where I contracted the disease. It could have come from work. It could have also come from one of the very few trips that I have made to the store in the last month. Um, it, you know, I am not surgically scrubbing and gloving when I remove my gloves to get back into my car after running and grabbing a few things at Target or picking up a delivery for myself to eat. So there's so many there's so many possibilities there and I think there's so many possibilities for every person um, it's like we do really need to take our precautions um, but we are still just people yeah. and we might get sick that is the larger reality in all of this is that should we run out and reopen our state? No Mm-mm. not a good idea but is it still possible to get the disease even though we're careful absolutely mm -hmm. uh, I want to make a very important comment here that Target is not sponsoring this podcast episode just yeah, because you may oh <laughs> <a lot. laughs> uh, so your symptoms are very mild um, you used a word maya mace something Malaise. Malaise. Yeah. It, I think it means like just feeling kind of sick. Yeah. In general, like it's no particular type of sickness. Um, and I keep, we keep putting it on like posters and things like that. Do you feel general malaise? And uh, it, that could also be like a condiment <laughs> or something. <laughs> oh, but so, like. <clears throat> So you have COVID and we're able to, well, you have COVID-19. I don't want to call it COVID because it's not COVID. It's COVID-19. Uh, you have it and we're able to sit here and have this conversation. You're not breathing heavy. You're not blue in the face or dying. You don't look sick and you tested positive and you have mild symptoms. You still could have passed this on to someone who may have, ex may experience severe symptoms uh, what are some of those severe symptoms? Is this where you get into the shortness of breath and then um, I don't know what else there is? So uh, the more severe cases of COVID-19 look like, um, I mean, as far as I'm aware, uh, severe shortness of breath. So um, shortness of breath is something that like you might experience as a healthy person after climbing two or three flights of stairs pretty fast and all of a sudden you're you're breathing a little heavier you're have you you feel like you need to do more work to get air in your lungs 
to feel like you've breathed, like you've gotten a deep breath in. Um, I'm having very mild shortness of breath um, when I lay down at night. Um, that's pretty much the extent of my shortness of breath. Um, I have not tried to do any exercise, <laughs> but I don't do a lot of exercise anyway. So, um, but uh, what we're seeing in patients with this illness uh, that is severe is also a dry, um, very persistent cough uh, that is causing, um, is also preventing them from being able to take those deep breaths and get enough oxygen. Um, additionally, a higher fever for a longer duration. Um, fevers bring lots of, you know, really undesirable physical feelings um, that suck a lot, so um, a lot of pain, um, a lot of weakness, chills, um, pretty severe body aches. Um, mine definitely were severe. I felt like I hurt from the tips of my hair to the bottoms of my feet, um, and that which is not at all uncommon for a fever. Um, any fever could feel like that, um, but the, the COVID-19 um, febrile state is usually a little longer than just 20, that's just 24 hours or 48 hours, um, and it may come back, you know, your symptoms may, may reduce and then amp up again, and that's something that's like kind of a sneaky piece of the disease. Mm -hmm. uh, we're also... Um, a lot of people have reported nausea and vomiting and diarrhea as well, um, which can cause severe dehydration, um, further weakness, um, and can really kind of tank you in your body's ability to fight, uh, mm -hmm. to fight um, what the virus is doing. Um, and then we get into airways and lungs. Um, it causes a lot of inflammation. Um, and a lot of scarring in the lungs, the trachea, um, your, your, basically your throat, your nose, all of your airways. Um, and those, uh, those can kind of shut down and stop doing um, the work that, that they usually do to get air into your lungs. Um, and that can be one of the reasons that people wind up in the hospital. Um, and when we're not getting enough oxygen, that can shut down our other organ systems like our liver and our kidneys and our heart. Um, so we have sometimes we are losing patients to multi-system organ failure and to um, respiratory arrest. Okay. Uh, with it being allergy season, is there more of like... Uh... How do we differentiate is what I want to ask. Um, I think the kind of creepy thing about COVID is that it can look or feel like allergies. Um, I was asked many, many times when I, I think, originally got sick and didn't know I was sick. Um, I went to the emergency. I went to my fast track in my emergency room and said, I don't feel good. I know I have, I know I'm running a temp. I thought it was because I had an ear infection because they get them monthly, just about. Um, and they said, they sent me home with an allergy prescription. Um, it was around the time that I was the most contagious. Uh, but, but, but it was also before I started running a high fever. 
Um, I think if I had gone in there with a high fever, they might have treated me differently in terms of what they chose to do um, medication-wise. But, um, yeah, I think allergies, and I don't have allergies, but as I, allergies, I know, usually affect people's eyes and noses and throats. Um, sometimes they can lead to respiratory illness, like a sinus infection or an, another upper respiratory. Um, feels like a cold, you get a cough, you get congested, you spit stuff up, um, you know, Mm -hmm. You feel, you feel kind of gross for about a week or it happens over and over. I think allergy season is pretty tough, but you get itchy, watery eyes, runny nose, scratchy throat. Um, with the exception of itchy, watery eyes, runny nose, scratchy throat, and a cough is consistent with COVID symptoms. So I think doing self-monitoring is really important, like saying, I don't feel good. So I'm going to call my boss and not go to work today. Okay. Uh, I, I worry for people who are in employment situations where they are frontline care or they are considered essential. Um, I feel like if you're a boss in the United States and somebody calls and says, I don't feel good, I'm not coming to work there is like a mark against that person for not showing up that day. We don't treat illness like it's a good reason not to come to work mm -hmm. in the United States. Um, I'm not a fan of that mindset. That is definitely one of the reasons. Like, I was ready to go right back to work mm. and give everybody COVID-19 that came into contact with me mm. um, because I am, I mean, I am not in a situation where I'm going to lose my job, but I do have that mindset. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to get in trouble at work for missing work. Um, I'm a unionized employee, but that doesn't really make a difference for how I personally feel about how I might be perceived for missing work. Mm -hmm. um, so I think as just to be responsible is to self-monitor, but it's also to say it's really hard to put your foot down and say, I'm not going to go to work when you're under pressure from your employer to be there. Right. Um, and it can be really scary for employees to say, I, I can't, because there's a lot at stake. There is. And um, so you get diagnosed and you just get sent home. There's no special treatment. There's no... Uh, medication to ease potential symptoms. You just are supposed to go home. What about the people? What's the difference between you and people who have to stay at the hospital? Like, what treatment options are there available that allow for you to just get sent home and for us to be in quarantine, social distancing, in order to keep people from getting this virus that we uh, are potentially going to overwhelm the healthcare system with? if the general treatment is for you to stay home? Yeah, so the general treatment, and I think, honestly, the majority of people who have COVID-19, we just want people to stay home um, because this can spread, like, absolute wildfire in a place like a hospital. Um, I mean, it's got a totally captive audience of people, you know, thousands of people who work in a, in a you know, in pretty tight quarters together. Diseases can 
viral illnesses like um, like stomach viruses and stuff like that can fly through a hospital. COVID nineteen is no different. Um, I am treat. I am self treating with Tylenol, um, and I am drinking a lot of fluids and trying to eat when I have an appetite. Um, and I'm resting. That's really all I'm doing, and that's all I've been doing. Um, I would imagine that people who are able to stay home um, with COVID-19 um, who are having trouble breathing, I'm not sure exactly what the inhalers are that are being prescribed, but I know there are physicians prescribing inhalers just like we would with asthma um, because they can help kind of open the airways up and allow people to breathe a little easier. Um, I think the drugs in each of those inhalers are going to be different based on your, based on the patient. Okay. Um, at the hospital, um, we have respiratory therapists who do breathing treatments with our COVID-19 patients who cannot breathe. Um, so that's like an inhaler, but it's on a much larger, um, more effective scale than an inhaler. So we've got nebulizers, we've got high flow oxygen. Um, we're also able to keep people on larger amounts of oxygen uh, than they would be able to use just at home with an oxygen tank um, because we have in-room oxygen uh, with much larger tanks. So they're not going to deplete through that as fast. Um, we also have patients who are ventilated um, or who are intubated and then on a ventilator. So that is the machine that breathes 100% for them. Um, we have something called BiPAP as well, which is a um, highly concentrated oxygen. Um, I don't, it, I don't know if you've heard of a CPAP. Um, yeah. it's what you'd wear for sleep apnea. It's kind of similar. Um, you wear like a, a, a face mask, um, and that helps you breathe. Um, and we can put medications into that, um, and that's something that. Um, our infectious disease specialists, our anesthesiologists, um, and our um, respiratory therapists and pulmonologists, um, those are doctors that work with lungs, um, are treating. We also have cardiologists that are working with our COVID-19 patients as well. Okay. Um, I would like to transition here into how you're impacted by this virus on top of having, is it oral or genital HSV? All right. So I am positive that you are um, doing everything that you can to minimize the potential of an outbreak. Um, during your chronic fevers, first off, when you get your chronic ear infections and you have your fevers and high temperatures, do you get outbreaks during that time? Um, I have. I, I, and I wonder, I haven't, I don't have any friends who deal with this as well. Um, but I would wonder if like, sometimes I'm always asking myself like, well, what can I do to prevent this from happening? Um, and then sometimes it seems like, oh, did I like eliminating this from my diet or making sure I'm getting enough sleep? Like there are certain things, but I'm not actually sure if they're helping at all or if it's just by chance. Um, so, but I'm still trying to do those things, and I also take um, one gram of valciclovir daily um, as well, and I've been doing that for two years, um, and that has definitely been really helpful. Um, but I have struggled to find a lot of correlation in my symptom 
occurrences um, because sometimes they come out of absolutely nowhere. And sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, I did have a fever that week. Maybe that was why. But then four months later, I get one and no idea. Mm. Uh, I've been trying to, like, not stress myself. I notice that when my cortisol levels are the highest, so when I'm in, like, fight or flight mode at work or I'm, like, really freaked out about something and I'm doing a lot of worrying, um, I tend to have um, outbreak occurrences during those times. So I've been trying not to lose my shit. Yeah. Um, which is really hard to do mm-hmm. in this situation and all others. So, um, yeah, I don't do a ton other than that, uh, because it's been pretty confusing anyway. Um, and I would, I would definitely be interested to find out like what other people who are dealing with COVID-19, um, how they're feeling about HSV occurrences and things like that because the illness if if your illness was more severe than mine or you know lots of family and friend stressors and relationship stressors come into this too like telling people that you're positive has been telling people that I have this has been really like Mm. re-triggering it feels really similar to telling people that I have HSV Um, so that has sucked Wait, so in disclosing your HSV status, you only have to tell the people who you're, uh, who are going to be vulnerable to exposure. Now, right. having COVID, any points of contact? That, anybody. So it's anyone. Anybody that I have been anywhere near. So I had to have my health department um, call my bosses um, and my coworkers, um, and then they called my, I've been in contact, not in physical contact with, but I've been in the same room with my pa- my fa- some family members um, who live in my household. So I've been, you know, we, they had to call them. They called my partner. He obviously already knew. Um, but we have had other social distancing, like um, meeting up with people just to talk, you know, across the road or that kind of thing or whatever. So I've had, there were, um, quite a few phone calls there as well. Cause we spent a lot of time outside. They called your partner. They did. Yes. Um, they called, um, they do, uh, your, I forget your chain of contact. Um, so, and that was for COVID, not for HSV. Right, right, right. But for COVID. Yeah. Um, the New York state health department, they do not give that person your name. Um, they just say, like, a person who you've been in, in um, like, social contact with has given us your name as someone who um, they have been exposed to for more than 10 minutes at a um, distance of less than six feet. Mm-hmm. And then, like okay, then, so then they call you and, and, and they tell you, like, this is what you need to do um, in terms of how how long you need to um, self-isolate for. Okay. So are you supposed to just go back to work in two weeks, or how long is your isolation? Um, so my isolation will be over um, 
my isolation will be over actually on Monday. Okay. Um, which is interesting uh, that, so we are still not sure how exactly how long I've had this. Yeah. Um, so there's a seven day window after infection, you are the most contagious. Uh, they do not know when I got infected. So our, our hypothetical solution, or like, I don't know, our hypothetical timeline here is that my quarantine should end on the 27th. Okay. Um, people who have come into contact with me, like my boyfriend and my parents, and my sister who I sat next to at Easter, um, there were only a couple of us in the room, but we were, um, we were seated, I think, next to each other or across from each other. They will come out of quarantine on May 4th. Okay. Now, what's been their response to your diagnosis and having disclosed that you have COVID-19 to them? Are they scared for you? Is there empathy? Is there anger? What's happening? Um, I think they, I don't know, actually. I think, actually, um, I know my boyfriend's really bored. (laughs) Because he can't go anywhere and do anything now. Not that he really could anyway. Um, But he is doing, I mean, it's only been a day. Uh, He helped me call a lot of people that we, like, walked by when we were, like, out walking and talked to and things like that. Because I said, look, you know, let's make sure everybody is aware. Mm -hmm. Um, Is this something... Is it something that like you could make a Facebook status about, or is this something that has to be more intimate where you only want the people who potentially were exposed to know? I think it's totally fine for people to make Facebook or like an Instagram story about. Um, I definitely, that was not something I was going to do. Um, but I, I don't think that it would be, I am noticing that a, a neighbor of mine who I came into distant contact with was very upset to find out that I had been walking around my neighborhood, which is a private neighborhood, um, you know, I was not out in public, that I had been walking around my neighborhood um, after having a potential symptom of COVID. Uh, so this is after my fever had broken and I was released to go back to work. I swung by. They were outside. I stood and talked probably 10 feet away from her for like a half an hour with her. Um, when I told her that I was getting tested, she got very upset with me. Um, and my timeline in terms of my symptoms and things like that, I couldn't make that make sense to her. Why I thought I was okay, why I thought I wasn't creating an unnecessary risk for her and her family. So, um, as a healthcare worker, though, a weird. As a healthcare worker, you are far more credible than this. I'm gonna assume that this lady that you were speaking with isn't a healthcare worker, right? Okay, so you're explaining to her the protocol and everything. Like, what is it that uh, we can share here for the general public uh, about your particular experience? So if someone has a friend, relative that tells them, hey, I tested positive for COVID, how can we respond? Um, well, I, I think actually taking a page out of our 
you know, our response to the disclosure of like of, of other types of viral illnesses um, is important. So just saying, well, you know, thanks for thank you for telling me. Um, and also, uh, you know, it it isn't it is all of our responsibility to stay away from each other and not to touch each other and not to touch each other's pets and not to be out at bars and restaurants and in public places and congregating and things like that. That's a responsibility that falls on everybody. Um, but it is also, um, it is nobody's fault that I contracted this. Um, and it is, you know, it is difficult to get feedback from someone else saying that, yes, it is your fault that I will, I may get this because, you came near me and didn't know you had this. Mm. Um, likewise, um, I think it's important, like especially for your viewers, I'm sure a lot of people who are listening have felt a lot, a, a very deep sense of responsibility for the health of, of other people um, and a lot of guilt and a lot of, you know, a lot of the things that I have felt. Um, so I'm trying to make sure that I don't relive all of those emotions um, based on other people's fear-based reactions to something that is, I can validate, it's very scary, um, but it's also, it's also not a good reason to place a lot of blame. Um, because while somebody might be afraid, getting the news that their friend or neighbor has COVID-19, they could all, and, you know, they could they could get COVID-19 from that person, but they're just as likely to get it going grocery shopping or going to the post office or, you know, a lot of different places that we still have to go. Um, we have to be careful about going to those places. We have to be limiting the amount of times we go to do different things in our daily lives in ways that we never have before. But that doesn't mean that you're that we're less likely to randomly come into contact with something that we can't see because that is the reality. We can't see this. We can't touch it. We can't. Yeah. Uh, you know, we can't wrap our hands around it. Uh, so it's a lot scarier that way. But it's also it's very ambiguous, um, like with any disease. Mm -hmm. um, so doing the tracing that our health departments do is important for statistics. Um, but it can, I think it can get kind of, kind of wonky and convoluted when it comes to who really needs to know. Okay. And what are, what are our actual, what actual odds are we playing with? Um, that's not something that we have enough info about yet. All right. I really do appreciate you taking the time to record. I know you just reached out to me with a question and it turned into a podcast interview within minutes of us speaking. So uh, my gratitude to you for making this time. Well, I can't say you're making the time. You said you weren't doing anything else. I have time in abundance. Uh, I have so much time. Are you available for, uh, let's say, I want to post this today. And then leave space for if anyone has questions for you specifically um, or any questions about uh, your experience in the healthcare field, having been exposed, um, 
and like moving forward, I'd like to come back and do like a part two for this. That's more of a Q and A. Uh, I ask questions that I thought were important for people listening, but there may be things that come up uh, that others may bring up that weren't there before. So yeah. if you're open to that, can I please have you back? For sure. All right. For sure. Might actually be cool to do it after I go back to work, because um, that'll probably, uh, and I'll also have you know an an open dialogue with a lot of other healthcare professionals. Okay. Uh, so if, if your listeners had questions that I can't answer, I can bring those questions to some very smart healthcare people and oh, cool. get some good, get some high quality answers in there. Um, so that might be cool. Awesome. We have maybe 10 minutes before uh, I got to get up out of here because I'm practicing social distancing, right? Um, I walk down the street to my gym and I'm recording, but uh, someone's going to be down here working out in a bit for himself. And so, uh, yeah, if we can just talk for a little bit more. Uh, Listeners, if you do have questions, you can either DM me on Instagram. I'm most active there. Uh, at H on my chest, or you can just email me, Courtney at SPFPP.org, with any questions that you have for our guests in regards to COVID 19 and herpes or whatever. But uh, I'll speak here from my experience. Like, I've not really been one to really take the quarantining and self isolation very seriously up until recently. A friend of mine, his mom, contracted COVID-19 and she made it through fine. Um, and I recently found out that someone I had went to high school with, uh, his dad had passed away from COVID-19. And, um, now you're the third person that I think that, uh, I'm aware of, like in my sphere of connections that has COVID-19 or has had any experience with COVID-19. So, um, in combination with this and a few conversations that I've had with people who are considered high risk, um, it's made me take this significantly more seriously. Um, I think I go to the grocery store maybe once every 10 days and I try to go as I absolutely need to and only get my three bottles of alcohol and get out of there. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I get, I get what I need to get and then I'm gone. Um, so yeah, I like, being someone who is coming from that perspective, from that space, uh, I think that it's important here to mention, you know, if you can stay home, stay home, um, or at least like have your points of contact as limited as possible. So if you go to your grocery store and you, you make it the same grocery store, I guess, if you're, uh, if you have to see people, if you live with people, or if you're walking past the same people or, whatever, then make sure that you're aware, okay, these are my points of contact and stay home if you're sick. Yep. I think also, like, I, I'm realizing looking back at the last couple of weeks of my own life, like, it's been pretty limiting to be self-isolating, um, but I know a lot of friends up where I live um, where this is just not hitting in the same way that it is. Um, in larger cities, because there are people are much more spread out here. Um, we're, we may have fewer deaths in this area than you know than other parts of our state um, because it is so rural. Um, I think that we lose, um, and working in healthcare can make uh, 
I was talking with my sister the other day and working in healthcare makes me and my father like delusionally unafraid of certain things because we can't let in how scary it actually is because we have to work with it. Um, so we tend, the two of us tend to be like, Oh, Oh, it's fine. We're fine. Everything's all right. Um, even though we, you know, we were both pretty socially responsible. Um, I've definitely been closer to other humans than I should have it at different points in time. And, um, you know, I think everybody's getting pretty sick of all of this and it, and it wears down what you're willing to do or, you know, to, to keep, um, to keep this up because it is, uh, does a little more work and when you have to like go to work and be normal um I don't know it's like can I say fuck on here it's kind of a mind fuck uh where you're like okay well I still have to like go get groceries um because if I don't someone has to bring them to me um so I have to like go do these sort of normal things but I can't do them normally mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and it's it's really weird uh cognitively it's hard to trust that others are taking all of the necessary precautions as well you can take all the precautions to prevent yourself from getting this virus any virus and then someone else could have just taken the same precautions that you take and come into contact with a person or someone could have just that in that moment of um inhaling at the same time someone's exhaled and the virus has flown by them or whatever. There, there's so many different uh, yeah. scenarios here of how unavoidable it is. Um, this really does remind me of the herpes stigma because of how seemingly unavoidable it is. We'd say wear condoms. Uh, there's so much misinformation out there that condoms will protect you from STIs and then there's all this misinformation out here that you know just taking these precautions of washing your hands and cleaning off things and self-isolating um there's no I, I there there's so much more there are so many more questions than there are answers to anything here and so um yeah we'll we'll see what some of those questions are and I'll get your email address information so that I can uh, compile any questions that may come up from listeners and then I'll just send those over to you um, I guess once we hit a deadline so I'll just allow there to be uh, open enrollment open enrollment open uh, submissions for questions for you and uh, we'll close it around the time you're ready to re-record and um, get the questions answered to the best of your ability and by the people who you're able to connect with. But before I let you go, is there a specific resource that is more credible in regards to COVID-19 that we can get updated information on? I have personally been mostly referring to the CDC website. Um, also, um, to uh, America, to the American Veterinary Association, um, because I have pets, and I was like a a little bit more freaked out than 
maybe the average bear when I found out the tiger in the Bronx Zoo had it. Um, I have my own smallish tiger here. Oh, look um, at that guy. <laughs> so uh, I was very nervous. I was like, oh, my God, I don't care if I get this, but if he gets it, I'm going to lose my mind. Yeah, he's not worried about it. He's like, Mom, you're just you're going to be at home more. We had a ton of really good information um, on their website as well for people who have pets. Or livestock, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, there's, I typically refer to like NPR, BBC, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington okay. Post. Okay. Um, but I don't know. Aside from the CDC, and I know they don't always have the best info. Um, they're what I've been going referring to. Okay. Um, well. We'll stop here. I mean, I can talk to you all day. Uh, I've got a lot more questions. And um, I think that, yeah, the biggest takeaway from this is just really stay home if you can. Uh, limit your points of contact if you absolutely have to. Um, and practice just normal hygiene stuff, right? Yep. Wash your hands and wear your mask. Okay. Um, this concludes part one of this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, share this podcast with whoever you feel may find it useful. Um, I, yeah, this is uh, <laughs> this is just going up. So now I'm all nervous. Usually I can just blow through these and then edit it at the end or whatever. But uh, we're just going to post it. Um, this podcast is a number of things. Suicide prevention resource for people diagnosed with STIs and an emotional support aftercare resource for people who are navigating stigma and STI diagnosis. Um, this is a useful support tool for them. So um, if this is your first episode listening to this podcast, please go back and listen to literally any of the other ones. Episode zero is actually a bonus episode and um, it can be found right after episode 100. That's probably your ideal starting point. Um, but yeah, given the circumstances of the quick turnaround time of this podcast interview and the pandemic that we're in right now, um, I just I wanted to make sure and just get this up and uh, get it out there now. And then we'll come back with questions later. Till next time, stay sex positive. And stay at home. If you can. Or limit your points of contact. All right, bye.